Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and a good thing we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor and I'm a podcast host and I care deeply about science communication. And one of the things that I really want to continue to talk about is the hot topic of COVID-19 and the mRNA vaccines. Now, some of you may be tired of the topic. I've covered this, you know, the last few weeks, but I feel it is such an important topic for us to understand thoroughly because of its relevance to science communication and public health. They've come up with the vaccine that appears to be a solution. Now it's up to us to convince others to get it into their arm. And it means we have to do a little bit of rhetorical arm twisting. We have to be able to reach out to people in our families, our friends, our communities, and help alleviate the fears, alleviate the disinformation, and counter that with good scientific information in a way that they'll understand and they'll appreciate. So some of the biggest questions that have come up around this have been around the idea of immunology. How does this thing work? Is it once it raises antibodies, do they stick around? Um, can I still spread the disease after I have the injection, uh, the vaccination? Um, all of these kinds of questions have circulated. And uh, I, I've been doing talks for various audiences in the last few weeks about this and reach out to a friend of mine who is much better background on immunology than I do. So Dr. Asha Brunings uh, worked with me in the laboratory for, I don't know, four years. And today she's with us on the podcast. Hi, Asha. Hi, Kevin. <laughs> it's always nice to hear you. This is really cool. So um, what's the, this is exciting because Asha, um, so tell me about your background in immunology. I mean, you, you're a plant scientist too, but tell me right. all about what, what you know in uh, immunology. How did you get started in that area? So I was actually born into a world of immunology. My father was a cell biologist and immunologist. And um, when I was in high school, I would go work in his lab. And, um, you know, whenever I would ask him something, he would always grab a piece of paper and a pencil and start drawing diagrams. So um, I knew a lot of my of um, immunology to begin with. But um, about 10 years ago, I started teaching microbiology at Santa Fe College in Gainesville. And um there, I was forced to actually teach my um, immunology. Um, so I also struck up a relationship with a publisher, and I edited a chapter, edited a chapter on immunology for them, and wrote questions and activities. So mainly geared toward teaching immunology, specifically adaptive immunity, to undergraduate students. So that's where my immunology expertise comes in. And other than that, of course, as all um, college professors, I continuously continually um, re-educate myself um, about all the topics that I teach. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say all college professors, but, <laughs> but um, I can name a few. But, but I guess the big, the, the big thing is um, I, I'm really impressed with how well you are able to uh, navigate these topics. And I mean, this is stuff that I had at one time and I really – am impressed with, but it's such a complicated topic. And, uh, and, and so I really, you know, wanted to hit, you know, really wanted to talk about it here for this audience. So some of the questions that we've heard from the audiences we've spoken to about, uh, how the MRNA vaccines spikes into literally the, um, immune system. But the original thing that we always were told was that, you raise antibodies against the protein that's produced, and then those antibodies bind onto the spike protein of the coronavirus, so the little projections that are all over it, and they block the interaction with the receptor. But it's much more than that, isn't it? Like, what else happens when you get that injection and raise that protein? Right. 
Um, so there is much more to it than that. Uh, first of all, there is no such thing as just one kind of antibody, right? There's multiple classes of antibodies. And, and this is why you actually get two vaccines, right, to sort of trigger that. So the first time you're exposed to uh, uh, any kind of foreign molecule, um, your body makes antibodies and typically also T-cell immunity against that particular antigen. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, and the first time you're doing this, your body is going to make the first kind of antibody it's going to make is called IgM. And this is a pentamer. It's actually five antibodies that are stuck to each other. Each of them can bind two antigens. So one IgM antibody can bind 10 antigens. So it's amazing at sort of clumping a lot of these antigens together, making it a much easier target for, for the cells in our body um, that are called phagocytes that gobble up that. And so those would, cells would come along and gobble up this IgM protein with all the antigens attached to them, sort of removing them from the body. Um, but there are, after that, if the immune response is triggered appropriately, then the body will also start making IgG antibodies. And IgG antibodies are a lot more versatile than IgM antibodies. Um, uh, a lot of these can cause neutralization, so they block um, the pathogen from from attaching to cells. They can also activate complement proteins. And so those are a part of the innate immune system that increases inflammation and brings more um, uh, white blood cells into the area. So you really want to get those IgG antibodies. And so the first time you're exposed to this, you have an IgM body, IgM antibodies are going to be made. And then a little later, you get IgG antibodies. But if you're exposed to the same pathogen again, like weeks, months, or even years later, you get the IgM response is going to be the same. So your body is going to make IgM antibodies and then they're going to go down. But the IgG antibodies are, is a lot more vigorous. So you get a lot more anti IgG antibodies and you get them a lot earlier. And so because the IgG antibodies are so much more versatile and because you get them in higher numbers and a lot earlier upon subsequent exposure to an antigen, those are the antibodies that are going to protect you. And so by doing this, by giving someone an immunization initially, you make that first antibody response. Well, that's nice, but that typically doesn't really protect you against future inf uh, infections by itself. It is when you're uh, exposed to the same antigen later on, and in the case of the vaccine, three weeks later, um, that you're really going to get that um, high number of IgG antibodies. And the other thing that happens is that um, IgG are the antibodies that are made by plasma cells, and the antibodies that are made are actually edited. So you get slightly different versions of the same antibodies so that you get actually an, an improvement. So as time goes by, later antibodies are better able to recognize the antigen than earlier antibodies. Okay, so if I understand this correctly, this is why we get that first shot and there's some sort of response, but then you get this booster. So you're not just changing the type of antibody that's being produced. You're also allowing that second wave to kind of shuffle a bit and optimize. Is that what's happening? Yes. So you get a lot more IgG antibodies and you make them a lot earlier, like within days. Right. And they'll be more effective. All right, I see. So then, then what happens to like a broader cellular response after that? Right. So the cellular response is also it, like the antibody response. You get a cellular response earlier and you get a cellular response later. So um, this happens when antigen presenting cells. So these are specialized of these phagocytes that gobble up pathogens. They go into this area, gobble up the pathogens, and then they travel to a nearby lymph node. And there they activate the B cells that are going to make antibodies and the cytotoxic T cells that are going to make, you know, mature cytotoxic T cells. And those will, so let me back up just a second here. So antibodies are really good at finding pathogens that are floating through the bloodstream in the body's tissues, like in between cells. But if a cell is already infected by a virus, because we all know now that viruses actually have to grow inside a cell, um, if a cell is already infected by a virus, then the antibodies can't reach them anymore. So cytotoxic T cells are cells that will 
um, after they're activated in the lymph node, will travel all over the body and trying to find um, the cells that are already infected. And then they attach to those cells and they actually kill them. Or more accurately speaking, they make little holes in them and inject them with chemicals that cause the cells to, kill, to commit suicide. It's called apoptosis. And so the, the cell-mediated immunity conferred by these T cells will actually kill infected cells. And the idea is that they do this before that cell can make a lot of virus that can leave and then infect neighboring cells. And it appears that particularly against sars um, CoV-2 virus, that, that cell media immunity is very important. Well, how many viruses can a cell make? I mean, you know, you're it's an infection. You, we've all seen the diagrams. One comes in, it makes a few more, right? Uh, well, right. So about 10, 20, 30,000 more. It depends on how long the cell lives. So here's the other thing. So there are different kinds of viruses. Um, some viruses are naked and some are, are enveloped. And so um, SARS-CoV-2 is an enveloped virus, right? So it uses that sort of envelope, that lipid envelope that surrounds the virus. It fuses with the membrane. Right? And that's how the virus is taken up. Now, when new virus particles are made, they don't actually kill the cell right away. They leave through that membrane, picking up a little bit of the membrane with it, and that becomes the new envelope of the new virus. And so they're kind of slowly budding off the cell without killing it right away. So this, this cell can typically last for you know, quite a while, actually, and in the, in the process, continuing to make to make um, virus particles. And that cell stops being what it was. So if this was a cell in the respiratory tract, it no longer performs the functions of a respiratory cell. It becomes a virus producing factory. And if a lot of these cells in the respiratory tract have that, then your respiratory functions are gonna be diminished. And that's why we get sick. But that's why something like um, SARS-CoV-2, but similar with influenza and other respiratory viruses? Yes, so similar idea, yes. They uh, infect those um, cells in the respiratory tract because those cells have the correct receptor that the virus can bind to and be taken up. And those are the cells that are killed by this virus. And or, or at the very least, they stop being, you know, performing the functions that they need to do as part of the respiratory tract. Okay, so if you get this uh, vaccination and you get the booster and you're, you know, it looks like you're, you've got some immunity going on towards this thing, um, is that going to be durable? Because, you know, we have to get influenza vaccines every year. And one of the concerns is that, you know, this just is going to be the, uh, a continuing saga every year with your new um, COVID-19 vaccine. Right. So we don't expect that. Um, and the reason is, is that influenza virus is a very different virus than SARS-CoV-2. Influenza virus is, is also an RNA virus like SARS-CoV-2, and it's also enveloped, but there, there, there stops the comparison. Um, influenza virus is, um, like most RNA viruses, its genome of RNA is replicated by an enzyme called RNA polymerase. And different viruses have different RNA polymerases. Um, in the case of influenza virus, the RNA polymerase has what we call, it doesn't not have what we call proofreading activity. Many enzymes, like the DNA polymerases in your body, have proofreading activity. So whenever it replicates your genome, your DNA, it goes back and verifies that it did it right. And therefore, uh, there's a, not a whole lot of errors sneak into that replication process. Many RNA polymerases, in fact, most RNA polymerases do not have proofreading activity. So when they make a copy of that RNA genome, errors sneak in, and that very often results in viruses that are either non-functional, but more than anything, I guess the problem is, is in the case of influenza viruses, that this causes um, a high mutation rate, so a high, chain, a high rate of change of the nucleotides that make up the genome. And this is those nucleotides encode for the, the proteins, like the surface antigens of the virus, in the case of influenza, hemagglutinin, and neuraminidase. And because those gradual changes are caused by the lack of the proofreading activity of the RNA polymerase, result in gradual changes in the protein and therefore the proteins from this year are going to be different than the proteins on that are made by the virus from last year but 
SARS-CoV-2 is different in that sense. So SARS-CoV-2 has an RNA polymerase that does have proofreading activity. So although the rate of mutation is going to be higher than in people, for example, it's going to be a lot lower than in influenza. So the, the surface antigens are not going to change as fast as they will with influenza. But is it just the sheer number of viruses that are that are replicating in, in the huge number of people that are infected? Is that why we're seeing all these reports of um, potential drift that that's happening from places like the UK and uh, Nigeria, South Africa? Yeah, but then the drift is always happening. Like every cell that replicates and every virus that replicates during every replication cycle will accumulate mutations in their genome. Some of those mutations are going to be silent. That means they're not going to affect any of the, the um, proteins. And some of them are going to have very minor effects. And some of them will have major effects. Some of them will have effects to the point that the virus can no longer replicate at all. And those mutations we actually never see, right, because the virus can't replicate. So there are always mutations. This is what this is what viruses do. This is what every cell does. Mutations are normal. Um, and the mutations in the genome can result in mutations uh, in changes in the amino acid sequence in the protein sequence. So is that really a threat? Because you could, in essence, create an amino acid change that now would not be recognized by the antibodies generated against the original antigen, like the, the original uh, binding domain of the spike protein. Right. So although that is in theory possible, in general terms, evolution doesn't really work that way. So viruses that evolve um, that or that adapt, they adapt toward greater transmission. But that usually comes at some kind of fitness cost. So that means typically means that they're less able to cause disease. They become less virulent. So it is unlikely that this would result in a virus that is super virulent, super able to cause major disease and replicate a lot faster um, or spread a lot faster. Also consider that if a virus kills you too quickly, then the virus can't spread very well, right? The virus is only spread by live people coughing and, and um, on people and spreading respiratory droplets. So, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing the virus a little bit, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for the virus to become super dangerous to the person and um, able to, to transmit as well. So it's highly unlikely because two, those two processes are encoded by different areas of the genome. Very unlikely that you'll find a virus that does both. That doesn't mean we should ignore the variants that are out there. We should definitely keep an eye on them. Um, but we don't expect there to be um, you know, a super virus. We're speaking with Dr. Asha Brunings about the effects of what happens in the body immunologically when you receive the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, at least the mRNA vaccine and probably the others as well. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. While this podcast gives you great information about science and technology, it's also important for us to keep in mind the good things we can do for people just by being sensitive to the problems that they're facing. Now, you see, we're still in this pandemic, and it's no sign of slowing down. It's been devastating for many families. Most people were not prepared for this. So just as we can control the spread of disinformation by relating good scientific information, we also can help limit the tragedy spawned from the pandemic. Join a local Facebook group and share critical information in your community. Share national numbers for assistance, such as the USDA hotlines that are available for the food insecure. 866-3-HUNGRY Mental illness is also emerging by those sequestered by the pandemic, oftentimes exacerbating underlying or latent conditions that previously went undiagnosed. If you know someone in need of help, contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Now every week we receive your emails about how you shared scientific information you heard here. 
In a pandemic, we need to fight for those who are most vulnerable and helping direct those in need to critical resources is another great role for all of us. And now, back to this week's podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Asha Brunings. Uh, she's a professor at Santa Fe College in Gainesville, Florida, but also an expert in immunology and someone who understands these concepts exceedingly well. And someone I've been actually, we've been doing talks together uh, for a number of groups. And uh, it's, a, it's a really good thing to have her aboard because she answers all the questions that people have with concerns of the immune system and the immune response to the virus and the, or the vaccine. So let's start there. One of the questions we received uh, today, I put out a note on social media to collect questions for you. Um, one of the questions is, what exactly happens when you inject mRNA into your arm as a vaccine? Okay. So the mRNA is actually enclosed in sort of a lipid vesicle, a lipid, what they call it, a lipid nanoparticle. And that protects the RNA, and it also allows the RNA to be introduced into the cell. RNA normally cannot really get through membranes, so but lipid can. So the lipid particle can be taken up by the membrane. So several things have, can happen. The injection into the site causes localized cell damage. So some of those cells are broken by the insertion of the needle. And that cellular contents leaks into the area, and that actually starts an inflammatory response. It causes the uh, locally the blood vessels to sort of their membranes become a little stretched out. So they become porous, and that means that fluid from the blood can um, flow into this area, and that actually brings white blood cells to the area. Um, also, in the um, in that area, there are dendritic cells. We call these sentinel cells. These are cells that are part of the immune system that are right underneath the skin that are kind of lying in wait for any damage to occur. And so the needle pokes in there and damages, damage occurs. And these dendritic cells then activate. They will travel to that injury and they will gobble up some of these, um, these lipid vesicles. And the lipid vesicles, the, the dendritic cells then that have gobbled up these lipid vesicles with the RNA, they will travel to a nearby lymph node and then these um, dendritic cells will activate the adaptive immune response so that we can make antibodies in T cells. Another thing that can happen is, is that the, the RNA can be taken up by the local muscle cells and the muscle cells, then um, the lipid particle is opened up, the RNA is exposed, the muscle cells start making that protein. And that protein is, like you said earlier, it's um, it's I don't know if you said it earlier. Anyhow, um, the protein is actually um, secreted or it is presented on their membrane. So it is um, the, the mRNA encodes for a protein that will actually be membrane bound. So that means it is expressed to the outside of the cell. And then again, in the immune system will recognize that this cell is infected with something foreign. But more often, what seems to happen is, is that these muscle cells start making a lot of that protein and it kind of overwhelms their system and they die. And when they die, those same dendritic cells or other immune cells will come in and gobble up those, those sick cells. And then they will um, travel to the nearby lymph node and again, adaptive um, then activate that adaptive immune response so that we can make B cells to make antibodies and T cells to make cytotoxic T cells. So that's what happens in a nutshell. In, in a nutshell. I mean, it's really a complicated <laughs> process, but, I, but I'm is. so glad that we talk about it because I'm so glad we can talk about it because this is the kind of black box that many of us who are more molecular biology geared um, fail to understand. You know, what are all these like little facets of this? So let's take some more questions. Uh, Kristen wants to know, uh, Kristen from Facebook, will our immune system recognize mutations in the virus? How much can it change? Merry Christmas. So, <laughs> um, so it's something that we kind of cover. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, nothing like a heartwarming question right. about our imminent uh, <laughs> lack of a vir uh, vaccine efficacy. So what do you think? How much can it change before it would evade the vaccination mechanism? So for it to evade um, the mechanism, it would have to result in major changes in the part 
of the protein that is recognized by antibodies. But to be perfectly honest, and I'm sorry, it is a lot more complicated than I can explain here, but I'll try. So the spike protein is a relatively large protein, right? It consists of three proteins actually sort of wound together. And um, the spike protein has multiple areas where antibodies can bind, and those are called epitopes. So each of these areas where an antibody can bind is called an epitope. So one spike protein can result in multiple antibodies, multiple different kinds of antibodies that recognize different parts of that spike protein. And so if a mutation causes changes in the spike protein, it might affect one epitope, but the chances that it will affect all of the epitopes are pretty much zero, right? So there will always be some part of the spike protein that will result in antibody formation, even if a mutation in the nucleic acid results in slight changes in that spike protein area, there, it, it's highly unlikely that it changes all of them. Okay? And this is an advantage of pre producing an mRNA that makes an entire spike protein. That means that we're presenting the whole protein to the immune system, and it will make multiple antibodies against these multiple epitopes. Um, it would, for example, be a disadvantage to, to make a vaccine based on only a small part of that protein that maybe only has one or two epitopes. In that way, it would be much easier for you know, the virus to mutate into and make spike proteins that wouldn't be recognized. But in this case, I don't think that's much of a concern. But is that really an advantage that other vaccine strategies would have over the mRNA um, approach? Because when, you, when we're getting an injection, say for, the, for influenza and it's the killed virus, you're getting all of the different membrane proteins and all of the other proteins that are within that virus that give you possibly dozens of different uh, epitopes that your body would produce anti antibodies against. Is, is that true? Um, so first of all, a, a, a point of terminology. So viruses are not alive, so we don't call them killed. Um, we call them inactive, <laughs> <laughs> inactive or replication deficient. But yeah, killed virus implies that they ever were alive and they weren't. So we typically say inactive virus. So um, the thing with influenza virus, if you use inactivated virus, um, that means typically that we get a good antibody response, but not necessarily a very good T-cell response. Um, so there's that. And then, of course, the influenza virus um, mutates much, rap much more rapidly, and so the antibodies that you make this year might not work next year. But the beauty of the mRNA vaccine is that it more closely mimics a real-life infection without actually being a real-life infection, right? So I'm sure you know that you can get the influenza shot or the influenza missed, right? And the influenza shot is inactivated virus. It cannot replicate, and it results in a decent B-cell response, which gives you antibodies. But the influenza missed is actually attenuated. So this is replicating, actively replicating virus, but it can no longer cause serious disease. So that more closely mimics a real infection. And so you get both antibodies and a T-cell response. And this is why the flu mist gives a more robust, longer-lasting immunity than the influenza shot. Unfortunately, people with immune deficiencies cannot get the mist because they don't have that, you know, they can't really um, deal with, there's some risk associated with, the, with um, in, injecting with an introducing an active virus in their body. So, but the, so that because there's always that risk, but in the case of an mRNA vaccine, you get both the advantages, you get the advantages of the attenuated virus without the disadvantages, because it's not an active infection, but it much more closely mimics one so that you get both that B cell response and T cell response, which would make it better than, um, than an inactivated virus. Okay. Okay. We got John from Facebook says, what is the maximum number of different mRNAs you could incorporate into one single shot vaccine? Um, I don't know that answer. Um, you know, we know that in certain vaccines, we give multiple multiple shots at the same time. So the body is definitely able to rob, you know, to to start multiple immune responses at the same time. Um, I don't know that we have the answer to that, but 
I don't necessarily see a limit. I can't think of a, I can't I can't think of a biological reason why there would be a limit, and maybe I don't know enough about that. But but that's kind of the exact exciting part for me for this is that you know all the the, the advent of RNA vaccines this opens up a door to other RNA vaccines for diseases that we have been traditionally very hard to tackle. Yeah, well, uh, you know, along that line, I got one here. Um, well, well, to to address the other one, you know, I can almost imagine a case where you will go for your uh, childhood vaccine and get your measles, mumps, rubella, um, polio, all that stuff as mRNA vaccines in one shot. Right. And because because you won't have to have these attenuated virus yeah. slurries with uh, all independent boosters. Right. So in the case of the MMR, well, and. The MMR is actually, the measles vaccine is actually attenuated as well. Um, they tried early on to make an inactivated, inactivated version of the measles vaccine, but it was not effective at all. And we have, a, the thing is, is that I don't see major changes happening to the vaccines that we have that are super effective already. Um, you know, I think it's going to be more likely that we're going to use this to target things that have been hard to target. Our measles vaccine is incredibly effective, effective right now. If everybody would just take it, we could wipe vac- uh, measles from the face of the planet, um, uh, which is unlikely to happen with coronavirus. And there are some reasons for that. The measles virus can only infect people. So it can't infect dogs and cats and birds or anything. So it hasn't, doesn't have another natural reservoir where it can replicate. So if we just immunize everyone against the measles, we can eradicate the measles. This is the reason that we could eradicate smallpox. It could only infect people. The coronavirus, on the other hand, can infect other animals. So there's always going to be a natural reservoir for coronaviruses. Um, So there's that. Um, So I think that for the future, I think the the RNA vaccines are going to be more likely for things that either vaccines that haven't been very effective so far or that have been, you know, pretty much impossible to make. I'm imagining like um, respiratory syncytial virus, maybe even HIV. I don't know. Um, um, Some of the Zika virus and chikungunya virus. um, we have a good yellow fever virus, so I don't think that's going to happen either. But dengue virus, maybe, because it's uh, for a whole complicated set of reasons, it's been hard to make a good dengue vaccine. Yeah, actually, yellow fever um, has been in short supply. And uh, in the yeah. States, and uh, I had to go to uh, Uganda a few years ago and couldn't get it. I had to sign all kind of paperwork uh, to receive the UK version, which they said had right. inherently more risk because of it, of uh how it works. I guess it's, it's sequence potentially had some enhancement activity, but um, the, well, there are a lot of rare tropical diseases, especially in animals that are looking for a solution yet. There's not enough profit motive in there to go through the research and development and testing and all that stuff to be able to make it. And do you think that MRNA vaccines could open a door to treating lots of minor diseases? Absolutely. I think because they're relatively cheap to make, right? Um, You don't require uh, massive cell cultures. You don't have to deal with live cells or active virus at all. You don't need any active viruses in your production facility. You just have a machine that basically makes RNA molecules by stitching nucleotides together. So it is a relatively easy um, process for production. You know, obviously, there's still going to be quality control issues and all that. But I do think this opens up some possibilities. Another question that comes from Frazier Kane, who I think is a fictional character. But, you know, when you're getting <laughs> <laughs> next, I'll get one from Jethro Bodine. Then we know we're on to something. Um, it says, uh, I'd love to know what additional benefits might come to humanity. And this is kind of related to the last question. Um, mRNA vaccines for the common cold, better ways to do contact tracing. Uh, rapid detection of infections through city sewage. What are some of the other collateral benefits that may come from the silver linings of what has been a really tough year with a pandemic? Right. Um, Well, at the very least, I hope we have greater respect for the world of viruses out there, right? Um, A lot of people have have heard a lot of things. This is a new virus. It's not a new virus. It's a variant of a whole set of old viruses that already existed. And we have only identified just the tiniest, tiniest little fraction of viruses out there. There are 
there are most of the viruses are entirely unknown to mankind or humankind, I guess. Uh, so I hope that we have a greater respect for the world of microbes out there, viruses in particular, um, that we realize that we absolutely need a better pandemic response, that we need to be prepared because this is going to happen again. I mean, we had SARS, coronavirus in 2003. We had a MERS coronavirus in 2012. We have SARS-CoV-2 in 2019, 2020. And, you know, there's going to be a SARS-2029 and there's going to be a SARS-2037. This will continue to happen. <laughs> uh, I have to ask, is that because you you, you have some information from uh, from uh, from someone who's planning to release them as? <laughs> so, 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 so yes and no. So I have some information. I have information that, that coronaviruses continue to mutate and evolve. This is normal part of what viruses do. And because humanity is encroaching on the areas where, um, you know, coronaviruses replicate inside other animals. And as people encroach on their natural habitats, we get a lot more exposure um, to this, particularly, for example, bats. For some reason, bats are like this massive, this area, this these animals where a lot of viruses can grow and bats are mammals. So viruses that can infect bats have a higher risk of being able to infect people as well. And as people move into their caves and 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 clear out the forests where these animals live, we are exposing ourselves to more of these viruses. This is, this is normal. So, so yes, we can expect this because of human behavior uh, in, in terms of, you know, our exposure to these animals, not because people are actually making these viruses. We can't. We don't have to. Nature does a much better job of making viruses on, um, to, to make us sick than we ever could. And, and bats needed some more bad press, didn't they? Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they got it pretty bad already, you know. I mean, all the hanging upside down and getting in your hair and vampire and all that stuff. But all right, here, let's uh, the next one. Uh, some say natural immunity is better, but how do we and our immune systems know the targeted? Wait, how do we? How do we and our immune systems know it targeted the best proteins to target and the best antibodies as opposed to the ones we get uh, that just get by are produced? whether naturally or not. Does that one make sense? This comes from first officer yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, so let, me, so let me try. So first of all, uh, we have some evidence that the antibodies that are produced against the vaccine are better than the ones that are produced from natural infections for a complicated set of reasons. Uh, we think it has to do with the fact that the vaccine includes a stabilized prefusion form of the protein. And I know I'm throwing a lot of jargon out there, but the spike protein, we think of viruses as these static entities but they're not. The spike protein actually changes shape, right, inside the body. And so um, having um, mRNA that stabilizes the shape into the shape that we want the, the body to recognize actually makes it more likely that we will be able to recognize the shape that we need to. So we have some evidence that the um, the Antibodies made against the, virus, the vaccine are better than the ones made against um, the natural infection. In addition, the natural infection, so this, the natural genome of this virus is relatively large for, for viruses and definitely for RNA viruses. Typically, RNA viruses have short genomes, and that is related to the fact that they can mutate so fast that they're no longer functional, right? So the, the, the genome can't really get bigger. But coronaviruses have relatively large genomes of 30,000 nucleotides. And so there's all these other proteins in there that have other effects. And we don't know 100 for 100%, but there are some reports in the literature that indicate that the actual SARS virus sort of modulates the immune response. So it changes the way it limits the way our immunity, our immune system can respond to the virus. Um, but the vaccine doesn't have those additional proteins that do that. It only has the spike protein. So it is we do, and we, so we can introduce the vaccine without having to worry about the immune system being unable to respond to it. 
Okay, the next one comes from <laughs> Pooterhead Farms. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, is there good evidence that those vaccinated but still getting infected afterwards have a better response to the virus? And I, I guess that means people who are getting vaccinated yet are showing up in the uh, like showing up as still getting infected in the right. uh, clinical trials. So why, first of all, maybe address why would you, if you receive the vaccine during a clinical trial, why would you show up getting infected? Okay. So there are several reasons. First of all, you may be, you may be infected just before. Typically people are tested before they get the vaccine, but sometimes tests come back negative, right? And even if somebody is infected, especially if you got it really early, if let's say you got infected today, the test is probably not going to be positive tomorrow, right? And so if you get the immunization tomorrow, then, you know, you might still get sick because the immunization is going to take about 10 days for it to ramp up that it can actually protect you. So if you get exposed to the virus in that 10-day period and maybe even a couple of days before you get the vaccine, you are still going to get COVID-19, get the disease COVID-19. And then also, you know, everybody has a slightly different immune response. So there are some individual differences between people that may cause someone to get sick even if they are immunized. Um, Also, the first immunization only gives about a 52% pr- uh, protection against the disease. Um, so unless you, un- you have to wait, so you get 10 days before you get 50% of, um, protection, and then another three weeks or so before you get the second vaccine, and then another two weeks after that, that you really get the highest protection possible. Um, so if you get, you can still get the disease in the meantime. However, it appears that um, not only do less people get this disease that are immunized, but most p- cases that are that do get it get much less worse disease. Oh, that I didn't do a very good job. Less worse. Uh, their their disease is a lot more mild. So it seems to be, you know, even if you do get it, it seems to be less bad. I could also imagine a lot of people get the vaccine armor that they uh, <laughs> that they they get the shot. They don't know if they're in placebo or right. you know a vaccinated group, and so they go out the bars, they go out dancing, go to a Trump rally, kiss a hobo, you know, whatever, <laughs> and then they try to like you know test, you know, maybe I can, and maybe that's so, part of it too, something like that. Let me give you the next I one here. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know, uh, but well, I, know, I, they, I, were, they were told to you know continue wearing masks and observe the proper protocol. Mm-hmm. So I hope they mm-hmm. listened, but you know, you're right. I mean, it's, you know, it's more than 70,000 people are getting this. So there's going to be some bad choices among them. Yeah. You know how people are wired. I know you, you know, we, we, <laughs> we know how people are. Okay. So also um, from Emily, kind of a goofy question, but I'm kind of a goofy person. Is it true that Dippin' Dots is helping with the distribution of the vaccine due to the required storage condition? And have you heard anything about now? Now, I know they've they've distributed other drugs in candy. <laughs> okay, uh, so goofy people are my people, so bring it on. Um, I have not heard of that, um, and uh, my thinking is is that probably no, because they wouldn't have the quality control uh, in place. You know, if you lose a batch of ice cream, well, that's sad. But um, you know, if you lose a batch of the thing is that if you the con- conditions of the virus transport aren't perfectly controlled, then the virus may not be very effective. And once it reaches it la- it, its final status, then you may be immunizing people with less effective vaccines. So I would expect that not to be the case, um, just mainly quality control issues. Yeah, I think I think it's a rumor, um, you know, just uh, that, well, I think it is because, uh, you know, Dippin' Dots I, and I've never experienced this particular product, but um, apparently they uh, make yeah. their uh, ice cream in liquid, liquid nitrogen, nitrogen or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, have, I have once. It's kind of interesting. OK, so it's, it's, a, it's a, how we never used to make ice cream in the lab. We never did it that way. No, we never. And we never we never got a, <laughs> a can of beer cold in four minutes in the minus 80. No, 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 no do not do nev- that. Yeah, and we never cleaned our floors with liquid nitrogen either. <laughs> no, or, or a staircase when <laughs> when late at night, when one of the professors was coming up during grad school. No, we never did mm-hmm. that. Um, Okay, so next one. um, I had another one here. Oh, I have a good one here from Facebook. 
from Lucas says, I heard something about potential autoimmune disease down the road. Is that even possible? Um, I don't I don't expect so. Autoimmune diseases are diseases where the body's immune system is having an inappropriate, very active response to its own body cells, right? So it means that your body, your immune system can actually tell whether something is foreign or whether something is you. And it's trained, quote unquote, um, to ignore you and to attack foreign cells. So in autoimmune diseases, something goes wrong with that recognition and certain cells of the body are suddenly recognized by your immune system as foreign and attack those. And so, no, I would not expect that. Um, the virus sequence is not similar to our, similar enough to our own sequence that antibodies or T cells that would be made against the virus uh, against the vaccine would also recognize our own body's um, proteins. So I don't expect that. Um, I would expect there potentially to be problems with people that are immune compromised, right? So depending on what kind of immunocompromised disease you have, whether or not you cannot make any B cells or not make any T cells, so that, you know, Obviously, all of these things you need to discuss with your physician, but in principle, I would actually um, think that people with um, autoimmune diseases would be encouraged to get the vaccine as soon as possible. Yeah, and, and I think the other important point to make is that, you know, this is one little cluster of antigens, potentially, when your body is continually bombarded by jillions of antigens on a daily right. basis from the food you eat, from the air you inhale, from, right. you know, you name it. And and if you get a full-blown uh, cold, like, you know, regular, you know, uh, common cold, the t viral titers are massive and, and much, you know, compared to what you're going to experience from the uh, antigen titers from production of the vaccine from this particular immunization. So, yes. you know, you're it. So if I wouldn't worry about that in the slightest, uh, and another one here, and this is a good one from Brandon via Twitter, um, Brandon on Twitter, not his last name isn't via Twitter. Uh, I'm curious mm -hmm. about mass production and quality control with millions of vials being produced fast. Is there a chance of a bad batch and how would we know? Um, because there is quality control, right? Uh, so there is a whole industry on quality control. Um, I don't have any major problems. There have been during some of the vaccine trials, there were some errors, but here's the thing. Those errors were caught, they were reported, and they were fixed. And that shows that the quality control works. Right. So that we know when something goes wrong and the companies are being honest about that error and they go back and fix it. Um, so I'm not concerned. Yeah, I think and I think the fact that this is a relatively simple yeah. manufacturing process is also a big a big deal. You're right. not having to produce virus and attenuating it, which includes more steps where errors could occur. Right. There were some errors in quantification. I know that there's some, um, one particular lab was using uh, spectroscopy to, um, to measure the RNA concentration. And as you and I know, that is sometimes that can be off, right? Um, and other companies use actually PCR to test the batches to check how much RNA there is. Um, so now that we know that that could potentially be a problem, we don't use spectroscopy anymore to measure RNA amounts. We just, you know, use PCR to test. Um, okay, that's cool. I, I was curious about that because I was, for some reason, under the impression they were doing in vitro transcription from plasmids because yeah. they were incorporating 100% pseudouridine. But you could do that by, or 1-methyl pseudouridine. But I yeah. think they're do, you could do that, um, or 1-methyl, uh, you're a sill. They're yeah, using right. the nucleotide, not the nucleoside. <laughs> right. Well, that's a lot of questions that we we're able to answer. Maybe we'll do this again uh, next week if there's a call for it. Okay. Yes, that sounds great. Yeah, maybe in the next couple of weeks. But for anyone who has a company or a business or, uh, you know, I don't know, community group, whatever you might have, um, Asha and I, we've been uh, taking this on the road, as it were, or on the Zoom, <laughs> taking it on the uh, electro, uh, on the uh, information superhighway. And, um, you know, we're happy to do this for multiple groups. We do have a slight fee schedule if you're interested in that, but we've done some rather substantial clients, some large companies that have really benefited from this. And the reason it's important is because for your um, business to thrive and for your um, business to return to normal, you need healthy employees and they're more likely to get vaccinated if they have their answers 
questions answered. <laughs> Not their answers questioned. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe um, that too, right? If they if they have answers that ought to be questioned, they should, they should do that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So so Asha and I are, uh, and I should say Dr. Brunings and I um, are more than happy to uh, to to do that. Asha, you know, we're we're old friends, so we were on this first name basis thing that makes it horribly informal, but uh, in no. In no way, uh, I certainly am always impressed when I get to talk to you about these subjects because I just really appreciate the, your depth of knowledge you bring to it. So thank you very much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And for all the listeners who stick with us all the time, this is going to probably be the last show of 2020. So we'll see you in the next new year, which will be the sixth year of the Talking Biotech podcast going into 1.4, 1.5 million downloads. That's million with an M. Wow. <laughs> Don't you like when they say that? They, we're, we're, we're doing well and bigger numbers every week. So as always, write reviews, tell friends, share the beautiful words of science uh, and be out there actively dispelling information, misinformation. Um, don't dispel information dispel (laughs) disinformation you know we're at a time where the innovation is there the vaccine works the vaccine looks like it has great efficacy and safety now the trick is getting it into arms and that's not a scientific innovation problem that's a scientific communication problem and we control that this is the talking biotech podcast thank you for listening and we'll talk to you again next week The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.